Welcome to Encyclopedia Obscura. My name is Casey. I'm Karen. And this is the podcast where two friends journey through the encyclopedia, one weird, mysterious, or obscure subject at a time. Today's episode is another two-parter, and we are covering M is for Medieval and N is for Navigation. All right, so I am doing M first, and M, like Casey said, is for Medieval, which is synonymous with primitive, antiquated, feudal archaic, and unenlightened. Since our human rights are going back to the Middle Ages, I figured I'd cover that time period in this week's episode. The medieval period, also known as the Middle Ages, is a period in European history that lasted from the 5th century CE to the late 15th century. It began after the fall of the Roman Empire. The start of this period is marked by political instability population decline, and populations moving from cities to rural areas. This period was also known as the Dark Ages. In and we're in Dark Ages 2.0. Yes. Oh, that's actually wrong. Sorry. The, <laughs> the first 500 years of the Middle Ages was known as the Dark Ages. Okay. Yes. In 1000 CE, the High Middle Ages began. This is the period from which my story hails. It was dominated by manor. This is a hard one to say. It's manor with eelism at the end. Manor realism. Manor realism? Yeah. All right. Well, anyways, it is an economic system <laughs> defined by landowners and villagers who owe labor and rent to the landowners. Hmm. And feudalism, which is a political system with knights who owed military service to the overlords. I'm seeing some eerie similarities. Oh, dude, I've got a sentence for you. Not yet, though. <laughs> <laughs> the Crusades began in the High Middle Ages, and the Catholic Church was literally everywhere. Still is. <laughs> the Late Middle Ages was an especially dark time marked by famine, plague, and war. The Black Death took out a third of Europe's population, and the Catholic Church terrorized the rest. Not gonna lie. I feel like we're living through this all over right? again. Just in, like, it's just a different flavor of ice cream. Yeah. It's still ice cream. Yep. Like, manor realism, manorialism sounds a lot like big corporation capitalism. The Black Death sounds a lot like COVID. And now the conservatives are putting the church in charge of our bodies. What's next? Mm. Executing women for their knowledge of science? I'm pretty sure that's what they're doing by putting bounties on people's heads for having miscarriages. Yep. Okay. So, <sighs> on a lighter note, I'm going to focus on a story from the High Middle Ages in jolly old England. Sticking with the correlation of the Middle Ages are now, this story could be likened to the Harry Potter series, a wildly popular distraction from the chaos around us, punctuated with thinly veiled racism. And transphobia. Oh. Uh, there's none of that in the story, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, the author's trip. Uh, yeah. I'm sure some of it bleeds out. Mm, probably somewhere. Somewhere. Okay, so the story I'm going to tell you is The Green Children of Woolpit. 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 Like, wool of a sweater and a pit. Yep, I yep. got it. That was just a poorly uh, done English accent. Oh. Is what I was doing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Our story begins. No, just kidding. <laughs> Our story begins during King Stephen's reign of England between 1135 and 1154. The date is unclear. Okay. <laughs> I'll get to that a little bit later. 
You would think they would keep track of their kings a little bit better. I mean, oh. they seem to make that their thing. Oh, no. So, like, that's actually when he was king. Our story just happens to take place in his reign, but our sources... Oh, okay. I was like, uh, how do they not know when this guy was king? They know, like, they're all about the royal. Yeah. So, okay. I miss her. So, no, you didn't. I don't think I explained it well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all we know is that the story took place during his reign. So it could have been anywhere in those... Roughly 20 years. Gotcha. Okay. So a little bit about Stephen and his reign. Stephen took the throne when Henry I, Stephen's uncle, died. Henry I had many children. Like, so many, I didn't even bother counting them. But only one legitimate son reached adulthood. So, like, he had a lot of bastard children. That, like, a lot of them ended up getting titles. I did not write this down, but I think that's crazy. So when the royal family, like, I'm not saying the current royal family because I know nothing about them. But like when a royal family marries like the daughter of a duke, duchess or whatever, whatever they're Mm -hmm. called, they could be marrying like their second cousin or something like that. Because if your brother, who is not a child of the king and queen, got a title and then had a child and then you had a child and then those two children married each other. They're marrying within the family. Yes. So that would be probably more likely with one of the um, the children, like, further back in the, like, the line of births. Because, like, the ones who are going to inherit the estate, they're going to be married for political reasons. And so they're probably going to be married to another family to make a union there instead of married into their own family. Okay. But they're... Remember when we talked about um, the House of Blanca? Yes, there was a lot of a lot of inbreeding in that family. All right, good to yeah. know. Oh, they were they were not royals though; they were just like nobles. Where was I? Right. So he had a lot of kids. Only one legitimate son. It's a numbers game. I don't know if it's a numbers game. I think he was just like gross and like. No, nah, it's probably a numbers game for his sperm. You know, you got to be in the right vagina. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he had a lot of diddling that's what i'm calling it today diddling spreading the syphilis around mm-hmm. good old siffy syphilis. i'm not sure if syphilis was around in the 12th century i mean i know it was around in like pirate times which was a little bit later all right crabs good old crabby crabs. definitely crabs definitely lice like everybody had lice back then literally everybody because they it. did not bathe regularly i would be a monk just so i could shave my head oh i'm gonna talk about monks oh look at me yeah I'm hitting all the highlights, and I haven't even read your notes. Yep. Okay. So, Henry I's only legitimate son died in 1120 in a maritime accident. Like, his boat capsized, and he's dead. Mm. Important to learn how to swim. Yeah. Henry I then named his daughter, Empress Matilda, his successor. Matilda was married to the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. But Stephen, King Stephen, being in possession of a penis thought he was more entitled to the throne than she, so he mm-hmm. took it. Matilda, the widow of the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, was not chill and began a civil war in 1139, historically known as the Anarchy, which I think is badass. When did she become widowed? I did not write down when she was widowed, but... Okay, so she was married to the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Yes. And then he died. Somewhere along yeah. the lines, and she was a widow. But she was set to inherit this throne. Yes. Okay, yep. got it. I'm caught up. So Stephen never had much control of the country, as Matilda had a stronghold on the southwest, and the barons of the north rebelled. 
That left only the southeast to Steve. Our story takes place in the village of Woolpit, named for the wolf pits. So wolf, like, oh, wolf pits Mm -hmm. dug around the settlement to trap wolves from emerging from the East Anglian forests. Hmm. Yeah, there are actually no wolves left in England. So, yep. (sighs) Why don't we do this to our planet? Uh, Because we're trash and we don't deserve the planet. I'm not disagreeing with you. Woolpit is just miles north of the area controlled by King Stephen. It's safe to say that this Suffolk village, so this was in Suffolk, was unstable as battles between Stephen and the rebel barons took place here. Author of The World's Greatest Unsolved Mysteries, Patricia Fanthorpe, tells us that in times of uncertainty, humans are more likely to report inexplicable phenomena. Do you think it's because people are looking for signs because everything is so uncertain? They're like, God's going to give me a sign or, you know, whatever deity you believe in. I think... And that's why people are more likely to report it? Or you think people are just so batshit crazy that they're just like <laughs> having a nervous breakdown every day? Not That doesn't make you batshit crazy, but you know what I mean. They're just having a nervous breakdown every day. And they're like seeing stuff because they're so stressed out. I think it's a little bit of both. And I'm definitely going to get into some of that later when I talk about what caused the story to be so popular. But I think people also just really wanted a distraction. All right. The tale of the green children of Woolpit comes from two accounts, Ralph and William. But before I get into them, I want to tell you the story. The children appeared at harvest time on the edge of a field. The villagers were working. As you might have assumed, their skin was green from head to toe. No, you don't say. <laughs> I do say. They also <laughs> wore clothing of a strange material and color. Bewildered, they wandered through the fields. Eventually, the villagers caught the children. They did not specify how they caught the children. So I'm not I'm not saying it was Why nice. Why are they catching these children? Like, what? what what's the end game here? That's a good question. And I'm not sure they had one. I Again, I think they were just bored. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Let's catch these green children. They also could not communicate with these children because they spoke an unrecognizable language. The children were emaciated, and the people of Woolpit offered them food, but they didn't eat. It seemed as though they didn't recognize bread or beans as food. Later, back in the fields, they attempted to eat the pith, or the flesh found in the stalks of some plants, from the bean stalks. Hmm. But because there wasn't much pith in these plants, they started to cry. An understanding villager showed them a bean pod from the plant and peeled it open, showing them the edible beans. And then they finally ate. Those are just another bean. They didn't recognize the first bean, but they recognized the second well, bean. Well, they did recognize, like, the bean as food, but they recognized that the bean came from the plant that they recognized as food. Oh, so they have to see how the sausage is made. Yes, mm. exactly. See how the sausage is made. So they finally ate, but they would only eat these beans for a long time. Well, that's why they're green. Maybe, maybe. Actually, no. Um, but I'll get to that later. I'll get to that later. <laughs> But eventually, they did begin eating bread and other standards of the medieval diet. As their diet changed, so did their skin. It began to lose its green tint. Eventually, they learned the local language, presumably Old English, and they were baptized. Sadly, the boy who was smaller than the girl died. Hmm. I mean, he'd be dead by now. This was almost a thousand years ago. Okay, well, I can't mourn someone's death just because it didn't happen recently. I don't know. You can mourn whatever you want. I don't feel bad. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> a monster. All right, when the girl began to speak, she told the people of Woolpit about her homeland. 
They came from the land of St. Martin, and on the day they came to Woolpit, they had been tending the family's animals, and they heard a loud noise, like church bells. The next thing they knew, they were in the field with the harvesters. She described her homeland as not having a sun that rose, like the one in Woolpit. It just kind of like, the light just kind of existed. The sky only grew as bright as ours does at dusk. So you know, like when the sun's basically down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She said that the people in her land were Christian and they had churches. So that's good. I guess they're not pagans. Okay, so for a moment, I thought you were going the alien route. But as soon as you said Christianity was there, I don't think aliens are adopted Christianity. No. Although I do think she probably said that because, I mean, well, she could have said it for any reason. But it is possible that she just said it because Woolpit was a very Catholic place. The entire European entity was very Catholic at the time. So not being Christian would have also been like a death sentence. Okay, so probably making yeah. it up or potentially yeah. making it up. Yeah, I wouldn't put much credence in that at all. Most randomly, the girl added that there was a brighter country across a wide river. The girl who was baptized as Agnes grew up and married a man from King's Lynn. Let's talk about the sources for the story. For something that took place in the 12th century, we have two surprisingly reliable chronicles. Both were written in the decades following the story, presumably while eyewitnesses were still around to tell the tale. Just about everything in the story we just heard came from William of Newburgh's account in his Historia Rerum Anglicarum, or in English, History of English Affairs in 1198. This work is considered one of the most valuable historical works on 11th and 12th century England. It covers domestic affairs from 1066 to William's death in 1198. Scholars believe that William recorded the Green Children's story several years prior to his death. As a child, William entered the Austin Priory of Newburgh to study history and theology, and he never left. He became an Augustinian canon, which is a man who is trained as a priest and often lives like a priest, like chastity, poverty, etc. But instead of taking a public vow and administering sacraments, he takes another role in the church. William was a skeptic and made that clear in this English translation of his writing about the green children. Quote, there is no rational explanation for it, and it seems foolish to me to present such an obtuse matter to people as though it deserved belief. At last, however, I was compelled to accept it because of the overwhelming weight of evidence. I feel like if you eat enough carrots, you turn orange. If you can eat enough green stuff, you turn green. And they might be hallucinating because all they've been eating is some weird green stuff. Maybe. That's, you know, that's that's a theory. I have a feeling you actually know the answer. I don't, but I have a lot of theories to share with you. Oh, okay. The other written account of the green children from that comes from the Middle Ages comes from an English chronicler slash abbot, Ralph of Coggeshall. I have no idea if that's how you say it. Ralph of Coggeshall. Yes. Or it could just be like Cogshall. I don't know. I don't know how English... I think Coggeshall's Yeah. Coggeshall. He lived at the Coggeshall Abbey, 33 miles <laughs> south of Wool's Pit. Coggeshall Abbey. I sounded like um like a GPS. Yeah, no. Turn right at Coggeshall Abbey. Coggeshall Abbey. <laughs> this abbey was founded by King Stephen himself and was of... The Cistercian Order. The Cistercian Order was more focused on religious studies than physical labor than the other popular orders of the time, namely the Benedictines. 
While some abbeys of the time served as boarding schools to the elite and many were self-sustainable, this one was not. At most, there were only ever 40 monks living there full-time, and the abbot was given control of the local town by King Stephen himself during the 1220s. Prior to his death in 1227, Ralph continued the abbey's work on Chronicum Anglicanum, the written compilation of events pertaining to the Cistercian Order, events that took place in the land and villages surrounding the abbey, and events that the chronicler of the time found interesting or important. This sort of record-keeping was common for such establishments in the Middle Ages. Ralph wrote on the events that occurred from 1187 to 1224. Mm-hmm. He cites Sir Richard de Calm from Wicken Hall and his household as his source. Ralph wrote that the children were taken from Woolpit to Wicks, which is where Wicken Hall is, to live with Sir Richard. Ralph's recollection adds a few details. One, the children emerged from a tunnel. Two, they went to stay with Sir Richard upon being caught. And three, Agnes served his house for many years until she married. During that period, she displayed wanton and imprudent behavior. Good for I her. know. <laughs> Both William and Ralph wrote in Latin, which took me down a rabbit hole because uh, why wouldn't they have written in Old English? That's an excellent Yeah, question. right? Bitches, I don't want to speak Latin. <laughs> Turns out that Latin was still used as the written language of the educated class at this time. So we've got an abbot in Ralph who would have learned this through his religious studies and William, who also had religious studies. And that's where they learned how to write in Latin. However, both William and Ralph are still regarded as reliable sources to this day. It wasn't until 1850 that Thomas Kitely published the first English translation of Ralph's work. At the time, readers believed it was a folktale, which makes sense since Kylie's book was titled Fairy Mythology. Yeah, I can see why you would make that connection. Yep, it's a little biased, I think. I don't have a date on when William's work was first published in English. It is also important to note that scholars believe that William and Ralph recorded their stories independently. Their writing styles and language is different enough that it's unlikely that either had read the other's work. Also, William died before Ralph wrote his work, and Ralph lived much closer to Woolpit, so he would have been exposed to the story prior to William's work making its way to Ralph. Yes, I could go on here, but I want to get to the fun stuff. So my sources will be linked so curious listeners can fall down a rabbit hole. Or not. It's undeniable that in the 12th century, people were talking about green children in Woolpit. So why? Scholars have rested on two probabilities. The story is a folktale, or the story is a garbled account of a real story. Medieval folktales might give us some insight. There was a fascination with tunnels, caves, and subterranean passages that naturally exist in Britain. For example, there are two folktales about fiddlers exploring tunnels while their friends listen to their music above ground. Each time, the music faded away and the fiddlers were lost forever. Well, yeah, don't go into caves. When are we going to learn this as a society? (laughs) Don't go into caves, all right? People go missing in caves. They get injured. They get stuck. Have you heard about that one guy who got stuck in the Nutty Putty cave? No. No. He thought he was going down something called the birth canal, which is like a very narrow shoot within the cave but he wasn't and he got stuck upside down and they tried to get him out for like over a day and a half and he eventually suffered a heart attack from being inverted Mm. and then they still couldn't get him out so they just ended up sealing up the cave and he's down there forever 
Um, why would somebody go down something called the birth canal? A lot of people enjoy going spelunking. Okay, but like an actual birth canal is a stretchy organ. Well, apparently plenty of people had gone down this particular mm. chute within this cave. It was like known for that, essentially. Mm. But I've seen the pictures and it is very tight. So we went hiking a while back and the whole goal was to get up to these wind caves. And there is an actual, actual cave up there and it's super fucking dark. It was so dark that when we like put on our phone lights, our phone flashlights, it it did not penetrate the darkness. So uh, you know what we did? You left. We explored around the cave. We did not go in the cave. Smart. Yeah. Smart. I'm not trying to die in something called a birth canal. Also, I think if a fiddler is underground exploring a cave, how is he looking at things? How is he? What's his light source? Good question. He's playing with two hands. Good question. You got a torch like taped to his forehead. Like, how are you looking ahead? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Where is the candle? I mean, that's all they had back then. Maybe on the fiddle? Maybe. Still, that's not enough light. Yeah. I mean, he definitely went down there alone. So... um, it's some Yeah, he probably just, they probably just fell down a cavern. Anyways. Anyways, another popular folktale, Babes in the Wood, tells of two children who turned green when poisoned with arsenic. But. Oh, that's a yes, happy one. But they were dead. And this folktale wasn't widespread until the 15th century. So it definitely did not inspire the story. I love how we have folktales about killing children. That's just great. When I say I love, I mean, I'm being sarcastic. Like, what the yeah. Fuck? You know why they were killed? Because why? their parents had died and they were going to inherit their parents' estate. But their uncle, who was entrusted with their guardianship, wanted the estate. So instead of taking care of them, he killed them. All right, then. Yep. Cool. Cool. All right. <laughs> there are several other elements of folklore found in the story that if it were made up, could be of significance to the medieval people. I'm going to list them now and explain what they could mean. So, if you remember, the girls said that they came from St. Martin. In mm-hmm. Celtic folklore, Martins are little demons. Oh. Yeah! So maybe the children in the story are there to represent demons? Or the mention could be connected to Martin Moss, a feast celebrated by Native Britons. I'm sorry, but if I'm a demon sent from hell, whatever, I'm not cleaning some stranger's house, okay? Oh, no. Mm-mm. I mean, I know that, that you said that she had some what people considered behavioral mm-hmm. issues. So, like, maybe the demon thing does hold some weight. But if I'm a demon sent from hell, that's not what I'm spending my time doing. No. No, if I've got powers, then fuck that. I'm not cleaning shit. No. I'm going to nope. set your house on Clean fire. Cleaning me. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Two. Take that for trying to give me beans and bread. (laughs) Speaking of beans, the beans (laughs) were the food of the dead. Maybe the children were spirits or represent death. Again, would not be cleaning a house if I were dead. Nope. You're not going to catch me doing any of this shit if I was a demon or a spirit. I agree. However, it was a very tumultuous time and place with plague and the anarchy war bringing death to their doorsteps. So maybe like the people who were talking about this didn't really think about the fact that dead spirits are not going to clean your house or the beans represent nothing. That's just a food they actually ate. Yeah. It could be like corn. I mean, we have corn and everything and it's all around us. I mean, I eat beans and everything. I grow my own beans. 
Yeah, you do be fancy like mm. that. It's because when it happens, when the apocalypse happens, or whatever's coming down the pike, I'm going to be ready. And like I've already stated in multiple episodes, I want to be done in the first wave. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to catch me out there in the woods without air conditioning and running water. It's not... It's not the life I, I want for myself. Mm. The only thing I don't like about that scenario is bugs. Yeah. Snakes. Poison ivy. Um, I'm I'm immune to poison no. ivy. Well, lucky you. No toilet paper. Let's leave it mm. at that. Yeah, you know. Everything's just going to be sticky in the apocalypse. That's true. And that's what really oh, gets me. I just... Oh, the spot between your boobs and your belly. Oh, I can't. Oh. And think about how shallow the water is where I am. Like, I'd have to travel a distance to get to something deep enough to get a good, like, wash in. And even then, the water is not good. Well, the water is not good anywhere, pretty much, on the East Coast. So I would have to boil a bucket of water and bathe myself with leaves in the wood. No. No, I'm not doing it. Mm. Wave one. Wave one. You do have a life straw, though. That That's going to get me through maybe two weeks. <laughs> I don't even have a life straw. I need to get a life straw. Well, I have I have a go bag. I don't know why. I'm not going anywhere if the apocalypse is coming. I'll just stay here. Yeah. We need She didn't evacuate? No. No, she didn't. We need to. a more fortifiable house. Like my house is a rancher. Like whatever's coming can come right through a window. Yeah, I'm on the third floor. Yeah, but you're gonna have to like walk off the stairs or something. Mm, true. Yeah. Again, first wave. Whatever. Ah, okay, okay. Anyways, back to <laughs> I'd like to clarify I don't want to die. I should clarify. I'm not suicidal. I love my life. But the fact that I love my life so much makes me think the apocalypse, the way I've seen it portrayed, it's just not for me. I've actually read some, like, post-apocalyptic books that I can kind of jive with. People living in, like, tribes again. No corporations. No credit scores. You just want to live in a commune. That's what you No, want. I just don't want a credit score. I don't want to be... Yeah, I don't want to be are... judged by money I never had. Yeah. True. Okay. All right, number three of the things that come up often in folklore is the color green. A green was the color attributed to fairies, gnomes, elves, leprechauns, and the little people in folklore. This yeah. could be indicative of storytellers adding a familiar element to enhance the mystery of these children. Tales of people encountering fairies and other magical beings was pretty common. Perhaps people were actually meeting magical beings, and almost a thousand years later, we just don't believe in magic anymore. And that's sad. William, although he tentatively believed the accounts of witnesses, admitted that sometimes evil angels caused illusions, and perhaps the witnesses were victims of that. Like a trickster creating mischief and making a village share a hallucination. Maybe there was something in the well water. Maybe. Mushrooms. They were all on shrooms and sharing one collective trip. Yep, one shared hallucination. Yep. Folklorists believe the story is in fact a folklore, and the children are fairies. They believe it is a much older traditional story passed by word of mouth from parents to child and only recorded for the first time by William and Ralph in the 12th century. I don't understand the point of the story, though. Uh... Like, usually there's, like, a moral of the story or, like, something you learn. This is basically, I mean, other than feeding two starving children, which is, like, great, good for you. I think that was the right thing to do. 
But other than that, what was the point of the story? Two green kids come out of the woods, they get chased down by these villagers, probably scared them to death if they actually were real. You know, given food they're not familiar with, try to eat some food that, you know, they were familiar with. Finally learn how to eat. One dies, the other one basically becomes an indentured servant until she's married off. Like, (laughs) what was the point? Um, I think it's kind of like how today there's so much media and there's not much of a point to it. You're just saying it was a story for the sake of it being a story? Yeah, people were bored. I would have come up with a better story. Yeah. Um, I also think because it's not that much of a moral story that it probably was not a folklore. Because why would it have been spread about so far? Like, why are people spreading this if it's just a folklore? And a kind of a boring one. A poorly yeah, written one. Yeah, yeah. Not, that, not that entertaining if it's just a folklore. Like, green kids that don't have any powers. That, like, literally all they do is eat and change back to, like, normal colored. That's not that interesting. Yep. Change back to normal color, one dies, and the other one becomes made. Yep. So, could it have been a real event? No. Actually, it's just boring enough that I could believe it was a real event. That's kind of where I am. Only since the 1950s have scientific theories, as we understand them today, been explored. The most reputable theory comes from Paul Harris. In 1998, he explains that the green children were the children of Flemish immigrants who were victims of violence during that time. The Flemish are an ethnic group native to Flanders, Belgium. They spoke a different language. They were also the people King Stephen hired as mercenaries in his war. So it makes sense that the locals would be confused by the appearance of such children. What did the boy die of again? Do we know? He he just died. died. Yeah. Okay. The children were likely from the village Fordham St. Martin, a Flemish settlement about eight miles from where they were found. Okay, no one put two and two together? (laughs) Are you kidding me? It's only eight miles. Man, I know they weren't highly educated, but damn, you don't know eight miles, like a town eight miles away? They would, they would, yeah. Oh Um, my god. I'm Flemish, well, no, I speak a foreign language and I'm from a place called St. Martin. Oh, just so happens, eight miles away, there's a foreign settlement that's called St. Martin. Yep. Harris believed they were green because of chlorosis. I don't know what that is. I'm about to tell you. Chlorosis is a controversial medical condition that sent me down yet another rabbit hole. It was most prolifically diagnosed of Victorian teenage girls. Why? (sighs) To quote ladyscience.com, quote, The first reference to chlorosis comes from the German physician Johann Lang, who in 1554 published the first medical description of the syndrome in a letter to an acquaintance about his affected teenage daughter. Lang did not suggest a cure for the observed symptoms. The behavior of Lang's long-distance patient, known merely as Anna in his correspondence, had become of concern to her father not for the girl's well-being, but because her increased emaciation was becoming off-putting to marriage prospects. Oh, there yes. I, as soon as you started that sentence, I was like, I know exactly where this oh. is going. Because her only value is to be sold off to a man for your profit. Yep. All right. So Lang described her syndrome as the disease of virgins, end quote. Ladyscience.com also describes the symptoms, quote, lack of appetite, fatigue, and moodiness similar to those that today may be treated as side effects of the hormonal changes during puberty and when girls begin menstruating. 
Of greatest concern to both parents and physicians was the suppression of menstrual bleeding, end quote. Hmm. But how does the green thing come around? Um, apparently they were also tinted green. Also, from this article, the girls, their maladies would go unnoticed. Like, they would literally be, like, starving themselves and depressed and just withdrawn from life. And it would completely go unnoticed because women at the time were expected to be meek, submissive, and quiet. And basically, their symptoms or their condition would get to the point of basically being starved. And nobody would notice until it was medically dangerous. Wow. So, chlorosis doesn't really work here. But there is an actual condition that can result in skin taking on a green tint. And it could be sort of related to chlorosis, but not directly enough for me to explain it as such. It's called Kermit the Frogosis. Yes, Kermit the Frogosis, also known as hypochromic anemia, or any type of anemia in which the red blood cells are paler than normal. This change in hue is caused by a reduction in hemoglobin in the red blood cells, which is a result of a vitamin B6 deficiency, which is caused by low iron intake or absorption or iron loss. Basically, when the body isn't getting enough iron, either by lack of consumption or by your body being unable to absorb iron, a person can turn green. There are many reasons this could happen. For example, infections like hookworms, therapeutic drugs, copper toxicity, lead poisoning, severe bleeding in the stomach and intestines, severe bleeding because of hemorrhoids, extremely heavy menses, and genetic disorders that cause the body to be unable to absorb iron. So it's a lot. A lot of things could like make your body not absorb iron. And that is what causes your blood cells to lack hemoglobin. And that is the only real way that you could turn green. Yeah, but would you turn green noticeably enough that people would call you green? Or would you just like get a gentle pigment enhancement? Because I'm thinking vividly green. Like these kids were like noticeably green from afar, not had like a little bit of green in their skin because they're, you know, malnourished. Yeah, so you would not be like Kermit the Frog green. You would be just, like, very pale. You know when a white person is about to barf and their skin, like, starts to look a little green? I've never okay. noticed that. Well, I've seen it on my own face. I don't... <laughs> I was about to say, I don't think I've ever, in my adult life, as kids, like, you know, kids used to throw up, like, in, in class or whatever, <laughs> on the playground and stuff like that. Like, I've seen people barf, but I haven't, like, directly stared into someone's face while vomiting in a long time. And as we both know, I am not white. So (laughs) when I feel nauseous, I actually get pale, not green. Yeah. So when I get pale, I look a little green. Oh, okay. So it's probably the same thing, except because I have browner skin, it's less noticeable. Yeah. Like, I'm kind of pink. So when the pink goes away, what you're left with is green. Kind of pink. Yeah, I'm pretty pink. Mm. You're mostly pink. It's true. It's true. Because the kids lost their green after eating beans, which are high in iron, it is unlikely that... Their problem was an absorption deficiency. It was probably because they weren't getting enough iron. A boring end to an even more boring story. Oh, there's more. I've got three more pages. Yep. Oh, okay. One medievalist, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, explained that the story could be an account of racial differences. 
between contemporary <laughs> between contemporary English and the indigenous Britons. So I took a shallow dive into okay. this. And so the ancient Britons, while they were not green, they probably had darker complexions than continental descendants that were living in the region of the time. So we don't often think of England as having indigenous peoples, probably because it was so long ago that the island was invaded. See, that's where you're wrong, at least from my mm-hmm. perspective, because I'm from Puerto Rico. Well, my, my family is from Puerto yeah. Rico. And so I'm always thinking who was here first. I just actually, and I don't even know why I didn't even think about this until yesterday when I saw a video about it. I just learned that the island of Martha's Vineyard had an indigenous. Yeah, absolutely. Of course there would have been. Why wouldn't there have been? I just never think of it that way because it's so like, you know. Well, not even that. It's just so mainstream now. Yeah. So we talked about the Roman invasion when I talked about Boudicca in our H for Heroes. So this story Mm -hmm. took place two invasions later. First, the Anglo-Saxons came from present-day Germany, and then the Normans came from present-day France. Basically, when we think of British people, we are actually thinking about descendants of Romans, Germans, and and French people. Yep. (laughs) Yep. It's kind of funny. So, not even British. I mean, like, the the royal family now... Technically, they are British because it's Britain now but not indigenous to mm-hmm. the area. The um the House of Windsor, which is like the the royal family now, they're German. They're not sure. like they're recently German. They're not even. Okay. So anyways, this theory led me down another rabbit hole. Oh Jesus, how many rabbit holes? I know, holes? that's why this took so long. The genetic analysis of Cheddarman. Who the hell is Cheddarman? Uh Cheddarman is a collection of human remains. That date back to 7,100 BC. He was found in Somerset, England, and his DNA tells us that he had dark skin and blue eyes. So that's what indigenous Britons would look like. Like dark. dark, Like darker than you. It's not that hard to do nowadays. Yeah, but definitely not white. Okay. So the green children could have been a story of racism, especially when you consider Ralph's story of Agnes's wanton behavior, because women of, quote, exotic or non-white cultures have been sexualized by white men since, as far as we know, the beginning of history. Mm -hmm. Yep. But what if these green children not only existed, but came from someplace extraterrestrial? I knew aliens were going to come Yes, that's my segue to aliens. Starting in the 1600s, there was speculation of the third kind. Robert Burton. Oh, my God. <laughs> speculation of the third. You were waiting to say that Yes, line, I was. You? Oh, my goodness. Robert Burton wrote in his Anatomy of Melancholy, also a book I would read. Seems yes, very dramatic. In 1621, that the green children fell from heaven or outer space. A few years later, in... 1626 or 1629, somewhere around there, Bishop Francis Goodwin wrote the first space exploration story in English, and it was titled The Man in the Moon or A Discourse of a Voyage Tither. Tither. I like the second one better. Yeah. First one's kind of overplayed. In this story, he writes of the green children suggesting that the lunars placed them in Woolpit instead of on a hill in North America. 
like they normally do with children who grow up wild. Oh, damn, we just missed out. Many have suggested Bishop Francis Goodwin wasn't off track. In fact, it is often suggested that medieval tales of fairies and other world journeys are actually close encounters with extraterrestrials. Do I have to go back to explain why we're never going to meet aliens again? No, because I'm not listening. (laughs) John Clark explains in the scholarly journal Science Fiction Studies, quote, The flying ships of folktales and medieval chronicles can be interpreted as alien spacecraft. The loss of time experienced by those who entered fairy mounds can be equated to that reported by abductees, end quote. To apply this theory to the greenies, which is what I'm calling the green children at this moment. I followed uh-huh. that. Thank you. The tunnels <laughs> mentioned by Ralph come from an alien base located near Woolpit, but somehow protected from human detection. Or the children are from a planet, possibly Mars, where the sun is cooler and dimmer than Earth, where people lived underground, and when the children were teleported to Earth, they came through a vortex in space. Or they came from a fourth dimension that exists alongside ours, and somehow they broke through. I, as an alien, again, I'm going to do it again. I am not coming here to either die or be a maid for the rest of my life until I'm married off to some smelly guy who probably only showers once a month. Absolutely Well, maybe. If I have the power to be transported here... I'm fucking shit up. I am not doing any of that stuff. Fair enough. Fair enough. Another fleshed out theory comes from Duncan Lunin. In a 1996 article from Sci-Fi Mag Analog titled Children from the Sky. In this article, Lunin describes his research and reconstruction of Sir Richard de Calm's family history, including Agnes's marriage to Richard Barr, who was a royal official. From there, he takes a less grounded approach, suggesting that there is a human colony established by aliens on a faraway planet. He takes time to explain details Agnes gave of her birthplace, like the dim sun and broad river. He also explains that the alien plants were genetically altered to be edible by humans, and the children's green skin is a side effect of this food source. Okay, so they can genetically alter plants so that humans can eat this food on this in this colony, but they can't feed those two children so they're not emaciated. I, I see the flaw. I see the flaw. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> All right. <laughs> just making sure we're on the same page. So I'm just going to tell you the end of this. The children were then transported to Earth by, quote, a matter transporter. That is a combination of the quantum scanning and wormhole systems, end quote. Okay, but here's like my favorite part of this theory. I'm going to let you say it because I also have another thing that I need to say Okay, but this is like my favorite part of the theory. Ludin adds that the Knights Templar are behind the elaborate conspiracy to cover up the alien interference. And that's it. That's all I've got. Yep, that's it. There. We're ended on aliens, because that's my favorite thing. The aliens that can create a wormhole but can't make a sandwich for a Yep, they don't set them with a lunch. Yep. Nope. These aliens are kind yeah, of Yeah, well, I mean, they did, like, snatch people and then create a colony somewhere else. Yeah, but what are they using the colony mm-hmm. for? 
food? Are we food for them? Is that why they're feeding us? Is that this grain that they Oh my gosh, it makes a whole new meaning to eat your greens. <sighs> to them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now we're going to move on to my topic. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, I'm covering N for navigation. So let's start off with what navigation entails. This is what Wikipedia says, and it's a quote, a direct quote, because I tried to paraphrase it and it just didn't make any sense because it basically covered all the information I wanted to have there anyway. So I'm just going to quote it. Quote, navigation is a field of study that focuses on the purpose of monitoring and controlling the movement of a craft or vehicle from one place to another. The field of navigation includes four general categories, land navigation, marine navigation, aeronautic navigation, this is me now, which is just a fancy way of saying sky Mm -hmm. navigation, and space navigation. It is also the term of art used for the specialized knowledge used by navigators to perform navigation tasks. All navigational techniques involve locating the navigator's position compared to known locations or patterns. Navigation in a broader sense can refer to any skill or study that involves the determination of position and direction. In this sense, navigation includes orienteering and pedestrian navigation. Orienteering? Yeah, orienteering. So it's what I do. It's when you go out in the woods and all you have is a map and a compass and you have to like get to different locations solely by reading the compass and the map. And you actually can race other people or you can just do it on your own. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And the major thing is like when you're reading a map really quickly, you have to make sure you're not about to run off a cliff or you're not. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or you're not about to like be at a sheer wall that you have to scale in order to get to your location. So it's really important to like read the map far enough out that you're aware of obstacles. It's actually a lot of fun. I can't really read a map. I can teach you how to read a map. I can't tell northeast, Mm -hmm. southwest, so. Well, that's what the compass is for. Oh. And the map. You know, my family has made me think that I'm just supposed to know where those are. No. I mean, not unless you're watching the sky to see where the sun rises from and which direction it's going. You should be able to just find that with a compass. Yeah. It's what a compass is for. My dad and sister, they're just like, yeah, that way's north. Like they... Well, they're probably where... Like, they're probably using, like, roads, like, established yeah. roads. Well, yeah, you could do that by by looking at roads. Like, certain numbers are different Yeah, directions. I mean, I can do that, but, like... They'll be standing, like, in the middle of a field, and they'll just be like, that's north. Or, like, in the middle yeah. of Camden Yards, and they'll be like, north's that way. And I'll be like, I don't know. How would I know that? I don't know that. Oh. Well, I can do that. Well, I cannot, and I don't care. Some people just don't have that sense of direction, and that's fine. That's why there's <laughs> GPS and compasses. No, I'm not judging you. I could do that, but I'm also, you know, I've had a lot of experience doing that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, so. remember when we were young and I, like, left my house to go to one friend's house and I ended up at a different friend's house that was in a different direction? I was about to say, that's probably happened more than once. It happened one time significantly that, like, my mom still jokes about it. Yeah. Hmm. I don't remember that, but I'm not surprised. Yeah. Now, I'm going to be fully honest with everyone and say I read a lot about navigation's history. For this episode, and while I think it's interesting, fascinating, and a whole bunch of other things, I will link the articles I read in the description, but I kind of just want to get to the main segment. Which is funny, Karen, because you said that in your segment. (laughs) Like, I have a ton, and I I did the same thing. I have a ton of information in the sources, but I'm not going to get into all of it, because that could be its own episode. And I want to get to the creepy, weird, stuff. Yeah, get to the good stuff. Aliens. There are no aliens. (gasps) 
You lie. There are definitely aliens somewhere. Okay, somewhere. You had your moment in the sun. They now may it's not my be here. moment in the sun. They may have never been here. They may have never come here. But there are definitely other life forms on other planets somewhere in this galaxy. You know, it's really funny. One of the theories as to what happened in my segment is aliens. And I just didn't include Bitch. it. <laughs> it would have brought me so much joy. Yeah, I didn't uh. do it. Or I may have, honestly. I wrote these notes like five days ago. I don't remember what I wrote in them. <laughs> All right, bring it. Bring on the <laughs> anyway. disappointment. So without further ado, let's talk about the Bermuda uh. Triangle, also known as the Ooh. Devil's Triangle. The geographic location of the Bermuda Triangle is a triangle, <laughs> shocker, within the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> that is between Florida, which is a state in the United States, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico, which is a commonwealth of the United States. So technically part of the United States, but not an official yep. state. It's about 500,000 square miles of ocean or 804,672 square kilometers. This part of the ocean is rumored to be the location of many unexplained Sounds like a really big spot. As- Yeah, it's huge. As well as the disappearances of numerous ships and airplanes. Some of the disappearances have even been in good weather and without even a distress call. Mm. We'll kind of get to that later. Those kind of start making sense with a theory, a scientific theory, Mm. not aliens, that comes out. Well, that I'll get to a little bit later. I'm sorry. I don't know. I mean, you were able to cover aliens in your segment. You should be happy. (laughs) I'm going to make every single segment for the rest of the show about aliens. I challenge you to do so. Challenge accepted. The earliest mention of this area being a hotspot of unusual activity comes from Christopher Columbus (gasps) when he arrived in North America. Notice I said arrived, not discovered. (laughs) On his first journey to the New World, which wasn't a new world because it already existed. It was just new to him. You can't just get, you know, call it a new world because you're ignorant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway. I've never been to Colorado. That's going to be a new mountain when I get there. (laughs) Basically, I've never been to that Applebee's. It's a new Applebee's. (laughs) I've discovered this, ma'am. We've been serving here for 50. I I discovered this. Here's my flag. Get me some wontons. Do they have wontons at Applebee's? I have no idea. Give me some boneless buffalo wings. So when he arrived in the, quote, new world for him, he reported seeing a giant ball of fire, which many believe was probably a meteor in the sky that crashed into the sea one night. He also said that he saw strange lights in the distance at another time, which I watched a documentary, which is linked in my sources, that basically explained that this could have been people who are living in the area already, because again, not a new world, Mm -hmm. he didn't discover shit, putting together fires at night on a hillside, because it's a mountain area. (laughs) So he just saw people chilling (laughs) on a mountain, like, getting ready for bed, and he was like, there are strange orbs in the distance. And I'm like, no, no, there really wasn't. It's called fire. Have you have you not seen fire Prometheus before? did him wrong. It's actually quite embarrassing oh, yeah. when you think about it. For him, not for me. I'm not. <laughs> you anyway. should be embarrassed, Christopher. Yeah, well, for a lot of things, yeah. not just this. His crew also reported unusual compass readings, which is a common theme when you read about strange occurrences in the Triangle. This part, however, can be easily explained as part of the Bermuda Triangle is actually one of the few spots on the planet where true north and magnetic north line up. Huh. So, for those who have read a compass, as I've stated earlier in my segment. I'm not one of them. In the wilderness. Well, it's okay. I'm going to give you some knowledge now. You will know that it's very important to know the difference between true north and magnetic north when you are navigating. 
Here's a quote from the Royal Museum's Greenwich that summarizes the differences between true north and magnetic north. Quote, true north is a fixed point on the globe. Magnetic north is quite different. Magnetic north is the direction that a compass needle points to as it aligns with the Earth's magnetic field. What is interesting is that the magnetic north pole shifts and changes over time in response to the changes in the Earth's magnetic core, end quote. So like true north would be like the top of the, yeah. the Earth. But the magnetic core, because it's changing, it's shifting, makes magnetic north move around. So now I'm going to tell you about two of the most famous disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle. The first is directly tied to navigation. The second is just fascinating to me, so I tacked it on to the end because I just like cool. wanted to talk about it. But it's also mysterious, so, you know, kind of, yeah. it fits the brand. First up, I want to talk about Flight 19. Because, you know, me and my airplanes, mysterious airplane yeah. disappearance. Yeah. It's my bread and butter. I don't really know about this one at all. Okay, well. Yeah. You're about to. In early December 1945, five planes departed Florida on a U.S. Navy training mission with 14 people on board. Actually, now that I'm saying this, when did... The lady be good around the same time, like it was near the yeah. end of the of World War Two, wasn't it? Yeah, hold on. So, Lady Be Good went down in 1943, okay. two years gotcha, after Lady gotcha. Be Good. So, it was actually navigation training, of all things, which makes their disappearance yeah, even more bizarre. There should have been an expert. Yeah, well, it was a navigation and practice bombing exercise. So, they were supposed to go out, bomb this abandoned. Mm -hmm. shipwreck that's just been out there for like ages and then navigate back uh -huh. to the united states together the planes were referred to as flight 19 usually when we talk about a flight it's mm -hmm. usually one plane you know flight 270 flight whatever but flight 19 was these five planes and actually an additional plane that i'll talk about so later. none of the planes came back that's nope. weird because then it couldn't have been like a mechanical malfunction well okay. let me get to it the planes were two BM Avenger torpedo bombers, for anyone nope. who knows what those are. And the plan was to fly due east from Fort Lauderdale for 141 miles or 227 kilometers before turning north for 73 miles or 171 kilometers before finally returning to base on a final 140 mile trip or 230 kilometers. The five planes never returned mm. to base. Once it was clear something had gone horribly wrong, a search and rescue plan was deployed to search for the five planes. This is the plane that's also included, like, when you talk about Flight 19, this is, like, okay. the sixth plane. It was a PBM Mariner with a 13-man crew, which is, like, kind of crazy. So, like, 13 men went out to search mm. for 14. So it's, like, 27 yeah. men out there right now. 27 dresses. 27 <gasps> disappearances. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, this plane also disappeared. Now, the rescue plane is actually believed to have exploded in midair while searching for the original five. So maybe not the Bermuda Triangle's fault, but there isn't really proof of this other than a boat saw an explosion and an mm. oil slick. So it went out looking for the five bombers, didn't find them, couldn't get any contact in them. In fact, at this point, everyone had lost contact with them because the men had already radioed in and said that they were lost and they were are kind of arguing mm. with each other. The lead, who was supposed to have the most navigational experience, was not really making the best calls. He was like, let's go back east, when everyone was like... Let's go west, because west means land. And for a second, they thought they were over the Florida Keys, which was kind of not really logical, considering they had flown hundreds of miles, well, not hundreds, but over 100 miles yeah. out to sea. Finally, at the very end of the transmissions that you can hear of the men, because the transmissions actually are recorded, 
They finally decide to turn back west, but the concern was at this point that they had already lost so much gas that they wouldn't be able to get back to land. So the decision was made that if one of the planes started to go below, I think I believe it was 10 gallons, then all the ships would try to do a sea landing together so they could stick mm-hmm. together. So essentially, like, if one goes down, we all go down together. None of this was actually ever proven, and none of the planes have ever been found. There's a theory that they made it back to land, but didn't realize that they were over land. Does yes, that sound familiar it to does. the Navy Good? And that they tried to land, but ended up crashing. But again, that's just a theory because there's absolutely no proof. At least with the Lady Be Good, yeah, there was the plane, you know, and there was they found the guys and they saw like what happened, like mm-hmm. timeline wise and logistic wise. But for this, it's just the five five planes disappeared. Maybe they just really liked the climate in the Bermuda area and decided to stay. I don't. So think I read so. a book. It was a novel, but it's about a couple of. GIs who liked the climate in Vietnam, like they wanted to stay in Vietnam instead of coming back. And so they did. They just stayed. They went MIA and and never came back. It was a Tom Robbins book. I, uh, I think it's Billy Incognito. Yeah, but there's like no place for them to. So the rescue plane was a seaplane. I should okay. specify that. But the bombers that went out were not seaplanes. So if they were going to land on the water, it was going to uh, be rough. Okay. And also these were all like... I think all of them were younger than 30. They ranged from like 17 to 28. I mean, that sounds like a good age group to be like, fuck it, I'm going to go live on an island. I don't know. I don't think they faked their own death. But, you know. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just throwing it out there. (laughs) I think the aliens took them. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) The Navy searched for weeks for all of the missing planes and found no evidence as to what happened to them. Now, there are some theories of where the planes are now. One of them I know Karen will like, and that's abduction by aliens. So it turns out I did include this. I forgot (laughs) I did. I don't go further into it. That's it. It's fine. So aliens is the first theory. The other is that the planes finally ran out of gas and crashed into the sea. And another is they actually made it back to land, but crashed somewhere in an area of Florida that is unreachable due to the landscape. To this day, no one has been able to locate the missing plane. So when I say an area of Florida that is unreachable due to the landscape, for anyone who's not familiar with Florida, Florida has a large portion that is Everglades, basically swamp. And you can't always navigate that. No, it's really difficult to build roads through it. It is protected by like natural, it's, it's state park, basically. It's state park. Yeah, I don't know if it was state park at the time, Um, though, but it's definitely really hard to get like, I don't know the timeline of when the Everglades became yeah. a national park, but it's really hard to navigate that. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of alligators. There's a crocodiles. No, a- there's a lot of alligators down there and snakes and poisonous snakes. And there's yeah. a lot going on. So if a plane were to crash in the middle of a swamp in the middle of one of these large portions of land, you may never find it. And if you do, it probably like years and years later. And at that point, anyone who had survived the crash would not be still No, around. I mean, it's... Like, you need a boat to get out of there, and they didn't have a boat. Yeah. And if you had injuries from that crash, which which is very likely, and you're trying to navigate out of there, and you didn't even know where you were when you were on, you know, Mm -hmm. in the plane. Yeah, you would have no idea where the direction to go. Yeah. It's a very hopeless situation. Okay. So Everglades could be a thing. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking that. 
or in the sea, but I'm kind of leaning towards the Everglades. It's also so crazy to me that entire planes and ships go missing even to this day. We have such a false sense of security when it comes to technology. Yes, we do. I forget the world is such a big place and you can still go missing in it. I mean, just think about that plane that went missing. like Malaysia flight? Yeah, just think about Mm -hmm. that Malaysia flight. I mean, parts of it have washed ashore, but we don't know where it is. We don't actually fully know what happened to it. Just went out into the sea and that was it. Yep. So let's talk about a ship that couldn't just disappear into the Florida Everglades because it was a giant ship. And it is the second most famous disappearance in the Bermuda Triangle and is the USS Cyclops. Have you heard about the USS I Cyclops? I have heard of it, but it's been a minute, so lay it on me. The USS Cyclops was the single largest loss of life in the history of the United States Navy outside of wow. combat. The 542-foot or 165-meter ship was carrying a 10,000-ton load of manganese when it went missing in early March of 1918. It was on its way from Barbados to the Chesapeake Bay. Okay, I've been there. Here in Maryland. The ship never sent out a distress call despite having the ability to do so, and after an extensive search, no sign of it was found. How many people were on it? It had 309 people aboard, and none of them were ever seen again. Many theories about its disappearance exist, some blaming storms, other capsizing, which I think kind of goes hand in hand with storms, unless ships just capsize on their own. I honestly have no idea. I don't know that much about ships. Maybe they do. Yeah, and you know, if you have 10,000 tons of an ore on you, that might contribute to some. Is that, I feel like I've heard of it being used in gunpowder. I, well, hold yeah, on. Yeah, let's find that out, because, I mean, I could be wrong. I could be talking straight out of my butthole. Stainless steel. Oh, okay. And it's also, and manganese oxide is added into rubber, glass, fertilizers, and ceramics, and a fungicide. But mostly it is for stainless okay. steel. So not <clears throat> explosive. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, well, if it's stainless steel, then I would say not, because stainless steel is usually used in heat situations. So if if it's oh, explosive, yeah. probably not. I mean, if it's explosive, it wouldn't even be able to be put in with steel, because it would have to be melted. Okay, so it's not explosive. Yeah. So not explosive. did not cause an explosion on the ship. Okay. That we know of. Who knows how they process it? I mean, they may have like burned out the explosive part of it and then added it to stainless steel. Oh, maybe. Steel. I don't know. I don't know shit. Neither do I. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. Where All right. We sing about how very, Podca- very little we know. I mean, we know some <laughs> things. All right. Another theory is that the ship just wasn't built for carrying the load. Here's a quote from Wikipedia, because I'm just straight up quoting Wikipedia today. Two of Cyclops' sister ships, Proteus and Nereus, were subsequently lost in the North Atlantic during World War II. Both ships were transporting heavy loads of metallic ore, similar to that which was located on the Cyclops during her fatal voyage. In all three cases, structural failure due to overloading with a much denser cargo than designed is considered the most likely cause of sinking. End quote. So which one happened first? Cyclops? Okay. Yes. Because the Cyclops happened in 1918, mm-hmm. and obviously World War II wasn't until a little oh, bit Oh, I thought you said later. World War One. So that's it then. Like, it, it was just too heavy. Kind of, but there's one other theory. Ooh, ooh. So, 
Personal anecdote. I do not float. Mm-hmm. Because much, much I like do. <laughs> the Cyclops, my bottom half is too dense. Like my legs, they just don't float. Yeah, but would you sink to yes. the bottom? Or just the bottom half? You sink yes. to the bottom of the pool. I don't think I've been to a pool with you ever or like for a very long time. Yeah, probably not since middle school. Well, I guess some people Yeah, I mean, I can float in the ocean because salt water is denser than pool water, but I can't float in pool water. Yeah, it's weird. My brother and my dad can't float either. Yeah, like our legs just start to sink and then like it pulls us down. (laughs) So we either have to like stand or we have to tread water. Oh, treading water. It is, it is. So like... Literally, if I'm in a any sort of like maritime accident, I will die. I would like to think that you would have a life vest on. I would like to think that too, but I'm a dumbass and I might not be. <laughs> okay, well, good to know. You heard it here first. I mean, I'm such a good swimmer. I'm like, I don't need this. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I wish should. I a life vest. I'm, I'm an okay swimmer. But I know in, like, the event of an emergency, I will suddenly forget how to swim, so I might as well have a life vest on. Now, I once actually dove in the water to save my little cousin who um, got, like, thrown off a a jet ski. Yet another theory is that a rogue wave took the ship down to a watery grave. Rogue waves can reach as high as 100 feet or 30.5 meters And if a ship is lucky enough to be able to go up and over the wave, the Cyclops would have found itself with a whole entire set of problems. So this this is going to be me explaining a diagram that I saw. So it's a hundred foot wave. Imagine that this giant ship is on the top of a hundred foot wave and it's not tilting over the wave and it's not tilting back to where the wave is going to crash. Right. So it's just balancing Uh on the top for a couple seconds. But it's got 10,000 tons of weight in its mm. cargo hold. And it's balancing on the center so of the ship. So it's a lot of weight on a small area of surface. Yeah. Right. So that would likely cause the ship, especially since, remember, it's sister ships, sunk because mm-hmm. of the cargo, right? Because there was too much cargo. So imagine it's balancing just on the center of so its they structural So just smashed down? It's likely to break oh. in half before the ship ever gets over the cresting wave. And that saying that it actually got Mm. above the wave if it got hit by the wave it would Mm -hmm. start to roll i don't think everything would be secure and again structural integrity issue next thing you know sunken ship Mm. so i'm torn between the rogue wave theory and people just overloading the ships but i will say that the bermuda triangle is also located in a part of the ocean where a lot of storms from the atlantic ocean can converge and this aids credibility to the rogue wave theory because yeah. Science. <laughs> like, I don't know. I, this is at the point where I was like, I've watched four hours of documentaries. I'm just going to have to believe yeah, that science. This, this is true. Scientists saying sciencey um, things makes sense. Yeah. I'm just going to say, if you say it's true, I'm not going to dive I into trust how it's your true. degrees. But the rogue wave thing is crazy because it makes total sense. If it's on top, it's yeah. going to break in half. Yeah. To this day, the USS Cyclops has not been found. I'd like to close my segment with a quote from Encyclopedia Britannica. Encyclopedia Britannica states it best, so I'll just quote it from them. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, there is no evidence that mysterious disappearances occur with any greater frequency in the Bermuda Triangle than in any other large, well-traveled area of the ocean. 
and boaters and flyers continued to venture there in the triangle without a vet, end quote. So essentially saying, yes, these have been mysterious disappearances, but there's no more, you know, craziness happening in the Bermuda Triangle than there is in any other ocean. And I actually read something that this isn't actually within the top 10 of the most dangerous oceans or parts of the oceans on the planet. Another thing I'd like to point out is something that someone in one of the documentaries I have linked in sources stated. Let's be real. Our society is a capitalist-driven society, right? Do you think that insurance companies that insure these boats and these planes would let these boats and planes go into an area that's considered, you know, mysterious where people just disappear all the time? Without having higher insurance rates to the point where people wouldn't fly over it? Yeah, probably not. Yeah, you would have to pay higher insurance if you flew over the Bermuda Triangle if the Bermuda Triangle was actually an issue. But instead, it was likely, the rumor was likely started by a fictional article published in a newspaper around the time that all the major events started happening. Basically, someone wrote a a little like novella and it became a whole thing. I like it. The power of fiction. So if you would like to reach out to us, you can find us at eothepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Encyclopedia Obscura. So message us and let us know your weird, mysterious, or obscure ideas for a future episode. Also, we are once again running a promotion for free merch. Do-do-do-do. Literally, we have merch. Like, just email us. Yes, we will we mail it to you for free. It. Yep. Magnets, mm-hmm. stickers, keychains. If you want more than one of each kind. The keychains are running a little low, but we have plenty of magnets and stickers, and we are happy to mail them out to you. Um, we have them in large and small. And yeah, just let us know. We're, it is we're happy our to send conspiracy them to, you. So. to spread our faces around the world. Yep. Yes. Yep. We want you to have yep. our faces. That phrasing was very <laughs> awkward. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. 